Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. Au sujet de la venue de notre Seigneur Jésus-Christ et de notre rassemblement auprès de Lui, nous vous le demandons, frères et sœurs, ne vous laissez pas si facilement ébranler dans votre, dans votre bon sens. Just kidding. I'll read in English. <laughs> Concerning of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is, his, what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Mode. Thank you for switching to English too. That, uh, that passage is hard enough to understand in English, much less French. So, um, you know, it's a, uh, a serious sermon when I bring the table out because I have so many notes that I need a little help with all my stuff. Um, so we're, we're going to be diving deep today into this passage. Um, and I'm actually excited. I, I think sometimes we come to passages that are a little difficult to understand and um, wrestling through them, we find some beauty that maybe we didn't know was there. Uh, but um, I remember very distinctly as a kid, um, I was about 11 years old, and I woke up one Saturday morning and it felt weird because my house was empty. I was the oldest of four and my siblings were gone, my parents were gone. And you might think that an 11 year old boy waking up to an empty house was like the best thing ever because it meant you got to eat whatever you wanted. You could have the sugary cereal you wanted, which for me was Cinnamon Toast Crunch. You could like turn on the TV and watch whichever like cartoons or TV show you wanted. You didn't have to fight with your siblings. And so for me, that was NBA inside stuff with a 
Ahmad Rashad. Anyone remember that TV show? Yeah, that was, that was my thing on Saturday morning. So you, you would think that I would be excited about the possibility of being alone on a Saturday morning. But, but waking up to an empty house sent me into like full-on panic mode. I, I was terrified. And so I started rushing around my house and seeing, like, are, are, is, are they in any of these rooms? Like, what, where, where is everybody? Why is it? And this was before cell phones. There was no note. So I had no idea where everyone had gotten to. And I was terrified. And I went into my parents' bedroom. And I saw an outfit of my mother's clothes just piled on the bed. And I was like, oh, no. And so I ran into the living room and I turned on the TV, not to NBA inside stuff, but to try to find the news, fully convinced that I was going to start seeing images of like driverless cars piled up on the highway and, and like pilotless airplanes just dropping from the sky. Because I thought literally the end of the world had come, my family had been raptured, and I had been left behind. <laughs> Anyone ever had that feeling before? Yeah. If you grew up like outside of this very specific like evangelical subculture, then you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. You're like, what is wrong with you? But if you grew up in that environment, I don't know if I, know, I can like adequately capture just the like sheer psychological terror of an 11-year-old thinking like, oh my gosh, God has taken my entire family. I am left alone and I'm about to experience seven years of tribulation all by myself. <laughs> like it's terrifying. And I was so worried in that moment about like, what is happening? Where is it? And I, I've, as I've kind of wrestled with this and thought about that story, I, I think there's kind of two generations that experience this rapture anxiety. And, and the first is kind of an older generation. And you grew up with like the Schofield um, reference Bible. Anyone remember that? It, it was this specific Bible that tried to make sense of all the end times prophecies and all the study notes. And true story, I grew up going to church three minutes from Schofield Memorial Church. So I was like fully immersed in that whole world. And, and that, that generation, the older generation, they, they had movies like A Thief in the Night. Anyone remember that? Yeah, okay, I hear from the oohs and ahs. It's like Christian horror like gone so wrong. It's like the most terrifying movie I've ever seen to this day. And then the end of the movie, they play this song, say, I wish we'd all been ready. And the, the line from the song is that, oh shoot, now I'm blanking on it. What is it? You guys could help me out. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind, which is just such a jerk move to play that song at the end of the horror movie where you were just scared that Jesus was going to leave you behind if you weren't ready, right? But there's this like kind of line of demarcation because there's the, the older generation that remembers that song as, as Larry... Norman's song. And then there's a younger generation, my generation, that we remember that song as a DC talk song. It was a cover. And we grew up not with like late great planet earth or, or the, like the, the thief in the night as much, but, but we had left behind. You want to remember that series? I think I remember hearing Larry or Nick, I can't remember which one, call that like Christian apocalyptic porn. That's what, that's what they called it. I'm not saying I agree or disagree. That's just what they called it. It was like all these books about end time stories and how the world was going to end. There was this cultural obsession for, for like 30 years where everyone was like, Jesus could come back at any moment. So you better be ready. And if you sinned and the last thing you did was sin before Jesus comes back, 
tough luck. You are, I remember going around my house and thinking that morning, like, what did I do last that caused me to be left behind? Like, there were just so, it was this, like, fear and anxiety. And I was talking to someone last night, and she said, I, I grew up Catholic. We didn't have any of that. And I was like, well, it was just the way we scared ourselves. Like, we just, like, Catholic Church had its own strategy, and this was the evangelical way of saying, like, yeah, you better be ready. And there's this cultural fascination and an obsession that we have with how is the world going to end? What does Scripture say about it? And whether or not we'll be ready. And if you ever had any kind of fear or anxiety about the end of the world or questioning, like, did I miss it? Like, am I getting left behind? Then actually I think this sermon today might be helpful for you because something very similar to that was going on in the church in Thessalonica. That there was a group of people who were afraid, they had thought that they had been left behind, that Jesus had returned, that the, the second coming had taken place, the resurrection had taken place, and they had missed it. And you see, they saw all these signs and things happening of people who were oppressing them and suffering was on the rise. And they saw figures through history that were, that were rising up and, and epitomizing evil. And they thought, man, is this it? And, and there were teachers who were saying, yeah, sorry, guys, we're out of luck. We missed it. And so Paul is addressing them and trying to, to provide clarity for their situation. And, and this is a, a challenging passage of Scripture. I'm not going to lie up front. I'm going to be asking you to do a lot of work today, to, to stick with me, to stay engaged as we kind of walk through this story. There's a lot of pieces missing. In fact, the, um, the Bible Project, they say trying to interpret this passage is like trying to put together a puzzle that you don't have all the pieces to, and you're not quite sure which pieces you're missing. So there's a challenge to this text. And what we have to remember up front is that when we come to Scripture, we are reading someone else's mail. That, that Paul, as he's writing this story, he's not writing it to me and he's not writing it to you. Scripture is for us, but it was not written to us. Paul was a real pastor writing to a real church with real people addressing issues in their time and their space. And what happens is sometimes we try to, to fit the puzzle pieces together ourselves. We try to, to fill in the gaps ourselves. But when we forget that it wasn't written to us, we start doing that with things from our context and from our day. And so we start saying like the man of lawlessness is, is like Putin or Trump or Biden or, or that the, the, the rebellion is the Chinese government who's trying to take over the world. And we start placing our paradigms and our things into Scripture and it leads us astray from the truth of what Paul was trying to communicate, of what God was trying to tell us about what is going to happen. And so we've got to step back from that, look at the, the text from its original context, wrestle through it, and we are. We're going to have to roll up our sleeves today. We're going to have to get into it, and it's going to be a little bit like a seminary class. Or I'm going to nerd out a little because I love the Bible, and, and I'm going to ask that you stay engaged and stay with me. I'll try to make sense of it, and then we'll see at the end if there's anything that is relevant for us today. Does that sound good? All right. Let's go. <laughs> so Paul starts... In this passage, well, first, actually, I'm just going to give you the big idea right up front before we get into the passage. This is what Paul's trying to do in this passage. Paul is offering clarity for the Thessalonian church about the approaching day of the Lord so that they will not be shaken or deceived. So 
We kind of see that big idea in the very first statement Paul says in this passage. It says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he talks about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's talking about the second coming. Jesus' return to earth as king and our being gathered to him. We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter. And what Paul is saying is that he has already written the letter 1 Thessalonians to this church. And there's been some correspondence. And, and what it seems like has happened is there were people in that community who either took Paul's first letter and started misrepresenting it and giving false teachings because of that letter, or... They forged some sort of letter or teaching from him. They started teaching false truths and saying that, that they were doing so in Paul's name. And so Paul is kind of ticked at these people for misrepresenting his truth. And he's writing to try to correct the confusion about that situation. And so he goes on and he says, Asserting that the day of the Lord has already come, do not let anyone deceive you in any way. So right up front, we see Paul saying, hey, don't be alarmed. Don't be deceived. People are saying that the end of the world has come, that, that Jesus' return has come, and you've missed it. That is not true. And he's going to go into detail to try to explain to them why it's not true. And he uses this line in verse 5 where he says, don't you remember as I explained all of this to you in person? And, and you think as you read that, like, that would have been great to have that, Paul. Like, why couldn't you just, like, give us all? We weren't there. We don't remember. Because it wasn't written to us. And so Paul is trying to, to expound on teaching that he has already given them in person, that they've kind of been confused or lost in. So good news is if you've ever been confused from my teaching or Larry's teaching, Paul also had that same problem with his churches. So it's okay. We're all in the same boat. All right. He goes on and he says in verse 3, For the day of the Lord will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So that day, the day of the Lord, what is the day of the Lord? If that's a term that you're unfamiliar with, I just want to try to give a, a really quick definition of what Paul is talking about, because it's actually a term that's not unique to Paul. It's used all throughout Scripture. This is a, a basic definition of what the day of the Lord is. The day of the Lord is a phrase used in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, to describe how God is at work in history, to confront collective human evil, liberate his people from oppression, and assert his rule over all creation. Now, something interesting happens in Scripture when authors begin talking about the day of the Lord. They kind of talk about it in two different ways. There are historical instances of the day of the Lord, and then they talk in vague terms about some future instance when the day of the Lord will take place. So think back in Scripture. You have the, the evil empire of Egypt that's oppressed and enslaved the Israelites. God comes and frees them with the ten plagues. Do you remember this story? And, and he shows up. That's a day of the Lord. God is inflicting judgment against a wicked, evil, oppressive, unjust empire to free and liberate his people. But it's a cycle that repeats throughout Scripture and throughout history. So later on, you see in the story that, that several centuries later, Israel has become its own nation, its own kingdom. And they begin to resemble the oppressive empire that they left. They begin to look like Egypt. 
that they're enslaving other populations. They're, they're inflicting injustice against the poor. They're mistreating people in their community who are vulnerable. And so the prophets show up and they say that a day of the Lord is coming, but, but it's not coming for the nations. It's coming for you, Judah and Israel. And God is going to bring his judgment against you because you have become evil and oppressive and God will judge your sin. That's not the end of the cycle either because then once Israel is taken into exile by Babylon and Assyria, then the prophets say another day of the Lord is coming where Greece and Persia and Assyria and Babylon, they too will come under the judgment of God. So there's all these historical events that scripture says that is the day of the Lord. But then in the, the same breath, as they're talking about all of these historical events, they, they have these illusions and illustrations about some future day of the Lord that, that doesn't make sense within the whole historical context. It's as if they're saying, yes, there will be this day of the Lord where these events will happen, but there's also a coming day of the Lord. This pattern throughout history will continually cycle until the culminating event of the day of the Lord. Does that make sense? And so which day of the Lord is Paul talking about? Is there some historical event that's going on within the church of Thessalonica? Or is he talking about the, the thing that's going to happen at the end times? I, I think Paul is talking about both. He's talking about a historical event that's taking place within the church that he's writing to. Because that's what the biblical prophets always do. They say, there's a historical thing that's happening here. Pay attention. But if you're afraid this is the end, don't worry, because that's still to come. You're just living through this cycle that repeats itself throughout history. And so he's talking on both planes. Now, if that's confusing at all, then I think it's fair to remind you that the apostle Peter said one time, that if you ever try to read Paul's letters, they're really confusing and make very little sense. I'm 95% sure he's talking about this passage. Like I think he was referencing 2 Thessalonians when he said that. So it, there's, there's two ways that Paul is talking about this day of the Lord coming. But he says before the day of the Lord arrives, there are two things that have to happen. Two things that you will see take place. And the first he calls the rebellion. And the second thing... He says that has to happen before the day of the Lord will come is the revelation of the man of lawlessness. So for the next few minutes, I want to kind of dive into each of those events and try to, to make sense of what Paul is talking about with the rebellion and with the revelation of the man of lawlessness. So first, the rebellion. What is the rebellion that Paul is talking about? He actually doesn't give us a lot of details. He says, hey, before it happens, the rebellion will take place. Don't you remember when I told you about that? And we're like, no, could you give us a little more? And he doesn't really. But there's some detail within the text. Actually, the word rebellion is a, a word that's used throughout Scripture. And the idea behind it is that there's going to be this moment, this great falling away, this great apostasy, where the, the people who have been following God, who have been chasing after God, have been living under God's rule and reign, are going to choose to rebel against the wisdom of God and choose to, to define good and evil for themselves. And, and throughout scripture, it's referred to as the rebellion, where, where the majority of believers will fall away from the faith and there will be a minority who remain righteous and faithful. 
And you see that in the historical instances where there are certain people who are taken into exile and there are faithful people who remain. Paul is saying that that's going to continue. This idea of the rebellion is going to continue. And if you remember in, in 1 Thessalonians, when the, the church is planted and when Paul is, is preaching the gospel in this city, do you remember what the, the riot that happens that starts there? Larry talked about this last week. There's a riot that starts because the people who are in power in that city are, are freaking out because people are coming to faith and allegiance in Jesus. And so they say these men are turning the world upside down because they are saying Caesar is not king, Jesus is king. And what Paul is saying is that the rebellion will be the inversion of that type of moment. Where the people of God no longer say that Jesus is king, we give our allegiance to him. They say we have no king but Caesar. And so there will be some moment in history where Paul says that people who have assumed they have a place within the kingdom of God begin to fall away and rebel against the faith. In fact, he uses the word apostasy. Because there are some people who come to this passage and they say, well, the, the rebellion is maybe just the world rebelling against God. Or maybe it's the nation of Israel rebelling against God. But, but by definition, someone who apostatizes the faith is someone who believed at one point and then renounces. And so the warning for the church that Paul is giving is, is people within the community of believers are going to walk away. And the, the really disturbing thing about what Paul says, and some of you probably caught it in the reading, is that this rebellion is, is influenced by Satan, but it seems to be reinforced by God himself. This is what Paul says in verses 10 through 12. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing... They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that they will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. See, Paul says that the reason believers are going to fall away is because they're going to be deceived by someone and something. And they're going to chase after this lie, this deception, and they're going to follow the way of wickedness. And then he uses a really disturbing phrase where he says, for that reason, God sends a powerful delusion on them. What in the world? In fact, in the original language, it's even a little bit more like ominous because it, Paul basically says, like, this is what Satan does. He deceives. And then he says, God also will deceive. And it's not an outright accusation. He's more passive in how he says that, but he uses the same noun in this instance. So what in the world is Paul talking? Why is God lying, tricking, deceiving the people of God so that they will fall away from him? Like what is Paul talking about? Well, if you think back to the, the story of Pharaoh, and when the day of the Lord comes and God brings his justice against the land of Egypt. Do you remember Pharaoh's response during the plagues? What does Pharaoh do? Hardens his heart. And what's interesting in the story is as, you, as it unfolds is that the first five plagues, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then after that, something switches. 
And as the plagues continue to unfold, then Pharaoh is no longer hardening his own heart, but God begins to harden his heart. And it's as if what Paul is saying is there's a certain point where people chase after wickedness and seek pleasure and delight in wickedness, and they they choose to go the way of lawlessness so much that God says, you can have what you desire. It's as if the punishment for evil and for rebellion is more rebellion. And so what Paul is saying is in this great rebellion, as people pursue wickedness, as they walk away from the faith, there will come a point where where God allows them to just continue in that delusion. It's not that God is actively deceiving or leading people astray. It's that God is saying, if this is what you want, then you can have what your heart desires. It's a very intense principle that Paul is trying to say about the end. It's a warning for believers. And the truth is that as Paul is talking about this, that it's happening on two fronts. He's saying that there is some eventual rebellion that will take place, but he's saying be aware Because that very scenario is playing out in your church right now. There are false teachers who are trying to lead you astray from the truth. So be on the lookout. Be aware of what is happening amongst you. So that's the first event, the rebellion, which precedes the day of the Lord. How are we doing? Are we tracking? Things make sense? All right. You know, it must be really cool to be a senior pastor because you get to pick and choose who has to preach which texts. And I, I'm pretty sure Larry threw me under the bus with this one. It was like, here you go. You can have that. I don't want it. <laughs> All right. We're going to keep going, though. All right. So the second event is the revelation of the man of lawlessness. And, and there's something that, that's very um, specific about this title, the, the revelation of the man of lawlessness. is What Paul is saying is that this is not someone that we are going to have to guess at their identity. God will reveal this person. When the man of lawlessness comes onto the scene, it will be so apparent. Everyone will know the tone is going to change because God will reveal him. It's not like somebody's just hiding throughout history and then like a magician pops out of the box and is like, hey, I'm here. It's saying that God is going to reveal this person. And when he says the man of lawlessness, what he's, what he's actually saying is that the man of sin, it, the, the idea of lawlessness is someone who has rejected God's rule, rejected God's authority, rejected God's laws, and chosen to define good and evil for themselves. And so when this person steps onto the scene, he's going to say, yeah, 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 I know that God said this, and, but this is what is true. And he's going to redefine good and evil for himself and for others, and they will believe what he says. And Paul says there's a pattern to this person that's going to come onto the scene. And the, the first thing that he says about him is that, that this person, this man of lawlessness, is doomed to destruction. So before even he gets into what this person is going to look like or what he's going to do, he just says, hey, you need to know right up front, the reason you don't need to be worried is he's doomed. Like he is going to be destroyed. And he is going to bring evil and oppression and injustice. And he is going to try to light the world on fire. But in the end, he is doomed. So you don't have to be afraid. The second thing Paul says about the man of lawlessness is that that he will exalt himself as a god. 
In verse 4, he says, he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, Paul is not literally saying that there's going to be a person, a man in history, who steps onto the scene and says, worship me, I am God. What he's saying is that when people exalt themselves, when people begin to define good and evil for themselves, those people are are in effect saying, I know what's right and wrong. I set the rules. I am God. It's not that they're going to establish their own church and people are going to show up and worship like some figure in history. In fact, even as Paul is unpacking this, he, he's saying that, that as the, this person arises, he, he's just going to be trying to lead people astray, and it's going to be as if he were a god the way people follow him. And we've actually seen that play out throughout history. Like if you think of, of Hitler, and I know everybody's like, okay, we're going to Hitler. Wow, we just really jumped. <laughs> think of images you see of the, of the rallies Hitler used to have in Germany. The, the way that people just hung on every word he said, the, the salutes and the acts of worship that they gave to him. He didn't say that he was a deity, but people followed him as if he was the one who was establishing right and wrong. That they, they gave him their allegiance. And what Paul is saying is that when this person steps onto the scene, he will exalt himself and people will follow him. They will give him their allegiance. But this man of lawlessness, he's kind of the repeated pattern throughout history. We see many men of lawlessness throughout history who try to lead people astray, who who try to say this is what's right, this is what's wrong, and defy the decrees and laws of God. And so so this person will step onto the scene. And there's a a really important part of this passage where, where Paul says that this person will establish himself in God's temple. Now, if you ever read the Left Behind books, then what that phrase meant was that there would be a rebuilding, a reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and this person would establish himself in that space, and people would worship him as a god in the temple in Jerusalem. And when you read that, you think, like, how in the world would that ever work? If we all know that's what's going to happen, if someone actually did that, like, how would we not just be like, yep, that's him, that's it, like, we, that's it, we know. Like, yeah, that's the end game. It's more deceptive than that. Because that phrase, God's temple, every time Paul uses it in the New Testament, it never refers to the actual temple in Jerusalem. It always refers to the church. Every time. And so Paul is not saying that some figure in history is going to reconstruct the temple and place himself in the throne there and be worshipped. He is saying that this person, is going to arise from within God's temple. He he is going to come from within the church to deceive and lead believers astray. I don't know if that's an amen or what, but that was a cool noise. (laughs) So this person is going to lead people astray. And this person will be energized by Satan. He will exalt himself as God and he will oppose himself to the one true God and lead people astray. But what Paul also tells us is that he is currently restrained. So in verse 6 and 7, he says, and now you know what is holding him back. And we think, no, actually we don't because we weren't there when you told them what was holding them back. So we're trying to piece this together. But he says, so that he may be revealed, at the pro- God will reveal him at the proper time. 
For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. So what Paul is saying here is that at this present moment, this figure, he already exists, he's around, but he's being restrained by something. Something is holding him back from unleashing the forces of hell and deception on the people of God. He doesn't really tell us what the restrainer is, but he uses interesting language. On one hand, he says that it's a something, and then he also says the restrainer is someone. And so there's some people who say, like, well, maybe the restrainer is, like, government, because that's kind of a thing, and that's kind of a someone. And so maybe it's government, the governments of the world who, who are charged with, with creating order and justice, and maybe they're the ones holding them back. Or maybe it's, it's the proclamation of the gospel, or, or maybe the church. I, I think what Paul is getting at when he says the restrainer is that, that can you imagine how bad things would be? If this person were in charge and God was not at work for the redemption of the world. He says that the power of lawlessness is already at work in the world. There are men of lawlessness who are already existing. But God himself is also at work. He is restraining evil. He is bringing about redemption for the world. So he's saying there's two things that are happening in this space. And the restrainer is this idea that, that there's a dam holding back the waters of evil and of judgment. Now, the question I have when we get to this part of the passage is like, okay, like, that's awesome that God is holding back evil. And it's not being as bad as, that it, as it might be. But why would God choose to, like, stop doing that? Like, let's just keep going with that. Like, that sounds better than the other. And Paul doesn't really give us any reason why God is currently restraining and at some point will stop the restraint. But, but in other places in scriptures, we have indication of why God might be doing that. For instance, in, in 2 Peter, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He's not slow in returning. But instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So, so there's some sort of thread in Scripture that says that one of the reasons why all of this isn't happening yet, it, it's not getting as bad as it will someday, is because it's God's desire that everyone would come to know the truth, that, that everyone would choose to repent and follow Jesus and not follow the ways of lawlessness. And then the final thing that Paul says about this man is that he is a powerful deceiver. Verse 9 and 10, he says, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. So he's not Satan, but he works the same way that Satan works. And he will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And Paul is, is helping us understand that when the man of lawlessness finally appears, and, and when he is finally revealed, finally unleashed, the restraints are off, he's going to do everything in his power to try to deceive believers and non-believers to, to convince them that he is not who he says he is. And he's going to perform signs and wonders and miracles and try to convince people there's going to be something supernatural about how he is at work in the world. But deception is the heart of his game plan. 
And there's kind of two fronts the way Scripture talks about this idea that the, that the person will come to deceive. And the first is they often talk about false teachers, false prophets who come and they try to redefine the laws of God. They try to tell us things that, that we want to hear. So uh, uh, an example of that is recently I was talking to someone. He's been listening to these different media personalities. And, and one of these media personalities says, you know, I can't stand the idea of turn the other cheek. Like that just sounds awful. Like why would we ever do that? And, and this person who's been listening to these people talk that way says, yeah, I can't understand that either. It's so weak. Like we need to be men who stand up and fight against evil. We need to... And what we're doing there is we are taking the words of Jesus. And I, in fact, I asked him, I was like, do you know who actually said first, like, turn the other cheek? And I'm not going to tell you what he said because there was a lot of stuff about all these different people who are on the other side of the camp and how, and there was a lot of words that I don't want to repeat in church. But his basic point was, no, it's just people who are soft. It's like, actually, those are Jesus' words. And we can't play with what Jesus tells us to do and how Jesus commands us to interact with the world. We don't get to define good and evil for ourselves. But, but we see that all over, and it's, it's left, it's right, it's dead center. People who step onto the scene and try to use Jesus and his teaching, redefine good and evil for themselves, and say this is what Jesus actually means, and try to deceive and lead astray the church. Paul is saying, watch out for false prophets, false teachers who lie about what Jesus says. But the second way people often deceive, the men of lawlessness will deceive, is, is the promises of deliverance. A, a false Messiah who steps onto the scene and says, I know Jesus says he'll save you someday, but I will save you now. I will use human means, I will use politics, I will use power, I will use oppression, I will use violence, I will use whatever is at my disposal to try to liberate and deliver the people of God now. And because the people of God are worried about what is happening in the world, they choose to follow a false Messiah who promises to deliver them. And Paul is saying, watch out for these false preachers and these false messiahs, these people who use smooth words to influence believers for giving up allegiance to Jesus and become deceived. And then finally, Paul says once again, he tells us this twice, that the man will be destroyed. He says, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Paul, Paul is using language to basically say that the, his demise is swift and certain. Have you ever seen one of those MMA fights where the two fighters in the ring, they, they, they just come out and it's like a one-punch knockout. The fight doesn't even start. It's just over before it begins. That's what Paul is saying will happen to this person. Like Jesus is not going to have to break a sweat with the most evil man in history to defeat him. It's going to be over like that. And as I was thinking about this idea that, that Paul's talking on historical instances and also some coming day of the Lord and that, that we're somehow stuck in between, that, that we will see events taking place in our world that will look like men of lawlessness have come to power, will look like rebellion and believers following away, but they are not yet the culminating event. There is some event coming in history that, that will conclude that cycle of history. I began to think of the Marvel movies. 
Anyone follow the Marvel movies over the last 10 years? All right, Tim, thank you. At least one. Okay, I tried to use the most like universal, like everybody's supposed to have seen these movies. They made billions of dollars, like every single one of them. So if you haven't followed, I'm so sorry. I can use another illustration for you after service if you want. But these are like all the movies that came out in a 10-year span. And in every single one of those movies, there's a villain. There's always someone who's trying to take over the world or conquer the world, and usually they're one of two types of people. They're either like someone who's been hurt, and so taking their anger out on others and like, well, if I'm hurt, I'm going to hurt you. Or there's some sort of like cosmic deity that's like, like hell-bent and literally hell-bent on taking over the world and causing destruction. And in every single one of those movies, what happens? The heroes win and the villain loses. And they don't have a story arc. There's nothing important about them. We don't know much detail about them. They're just there to kind of move the plot forward. But what Marvel was doing was they were saying that there is some big bad villain coming at the end. All of these movies are going to culminate with the arrival of Thanos. And throughout the movies, you see hints and glimpses that he's around or he's maybe working behind the scenes. But, but I don't know if you remember that when Infinity War came out, and the immediate shift in the tone of the series, like in the first five minutes, people start dying that you've been watching for 10 years. And you're like, oh my gosh, I really like that person. Now they're just gone. Like the tone shifted and it, Thanos had arrived. And this whole cycle had been leading to this culminating event where the end had come. That's what Paul is saying is going on in the Thessalonican church. And there are people who are trying to lead you astray. There are people who are villains. They're trying to rise up. They're trying to lead you away from the ways of God. But they're all just like footnotes in history. That the big villain is still to come. So watch and be aware in the present. But know that the end has not yet arrived. And so why is Paul, why is Paul walking through those different stages? What is Paul trying to tell us? I think there's three things that Paul is trying to pull out for the Thessalonian church that apply to us. And the first is this, don't be shaken. Like when you look at the events of history, when you look at the reality that we're living in, when it seems like our country is falling apart, when it seems like the world is going the way of the devil, when it seems like things are not the way that they should be, don't be shaken. Jesus is in control. There will be men of lawlessness that rise and fall until the end. But Jesus is in control. And so when you hear that the stock market is crashing, don't be shaken. When you hear that there are wars and rumors of wars, don't be shaken. Jesus is in control. When you think that the, the opposition and the political party has come to power and that means the end is coming, don't be shaken. Jesus is in control. See, we do not have to be afraid of the events of history because there is a cycle that repeats itself and every single time Jesus wins. So we do not have to be afraid. And the reason why it's so important that we do not panic, that we do not fear, that we do not be shaken is because when we begin to panic, when we begin to be afraid, that is when we are deceived. Because when we think, oh my gosh, everything is happening and this is the end and this is going to, 
We look for people who will come and save us. We look for false messiahs who we think can deliver us in the present from the realities that we're facing. And we begin to follow men who promise to make the world the way we think it should be. And we give them our allegiance instead of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we are being deceived. And I saw a graph this week that I think perfectly illustrates the way that, that, that most of the American church is deceived. And this might step on some toes, but I'm an equal opportunist, so I'm going to try to step on everyone's toes. This is a graph, a study that was done asking Christians to rate Jesus Christ on a spectrum of extremely left-wing to extremely right-wing by their own ideological identity. Guess what? If you were a conservative, Jesus was a conservative. And if you were a liberal, Jesus also, good news, was a liberal. In fact, if you look at the graph and do the math, 75% of conservatives said that Jesus was conservative. And 75% of liberals said Jesus was a liberal. And if you are a moderate, you think Jesus is a moderate. To the degree that you fall in line with certain political camps, guess what? Good news for you. Jesus agrees with everything you think and believe in the way you vote. We might be deceived when Jesus begins to, to resemble our political spectrum more than the Jesus Christ, the truth that is revealed in Scripture. You see, what I think is one of the greatest threats to the American church is that our political system has politicized Jesus. And we've said, hey, you know what? If you're worried about the way the things are going in the world, we will fix that for you because we have Jesus on our side. And the problem with that is that Jesus is not left or right or even center. He is above. He is king who rules. He does not fit into our political boxes. And see, what we do when we come to passages like 2 Thessalonians 2 is we say, man, you know what? Like, I think the man of lawlessness, I, I think it's Trump. I know it's Trump. He, he looks like the man of lawlessness. You know, and if I asked half of you like eight years ago, you would have told me the man of lawlessness was Hillary. And before that, it was Obama. You see how myopic we can get with this stuff? Like we just see our own time, our own space, and we try to plug the puzzle pieces in and it leads us astray from the truth of what Paul was trying to say. That Jesus is Lord. So do not be afraid and do not be deceived. Do not follow the people in history who try to lead you and say that they will promise your salvation and deliverance. See, what's ironic about passages like this, all the apocalyptic passages, is we often use them for the very antithesis of what the authors intended. See, Paul was writing to say it doesn't matter when, it doesn't matter who, he doesn't give time, he doesn't give dates, he doesn't give names. There's a reason for that. He's saying do not speculate. We want to have all these end times conferences and we want to label who the man of lawlessness is and we want to know like when the rebellion is happening. And Paul says... You will know. You will not have to guess. It will be very clear. The tone is going to shift. Do not speculate. Because when you go down the road of speculation, it is a detriment to your witness and to believing the truth. 
See, we can get all caught up in different media personalities and political figures and religious leaders who say they know the truth. But we can allow all of these people to influence us more than we are shaped and discipled by Jesus Christ. And, and so a challenge, a legitimate challenge for all of this this week is do you want to know how not to be deceived? Be more shaped by the truth of Scripture than by the political ideologies of the day. Because if that graph is true, most of us have been deceived because we are falling into the patterns of the world and we are not being shaped by the truth of Scripture and what God has revealed to us in the Bible. Do we believe the truth? Will we be deceived? Do not be shaken. Do not be deceived. And don't speculate. Know that Jesus is Lord, that he will return and set all things right. And the task before then is for the church to remain true to who Jesus says he is, to hold fast to the truth, and to persevere until that day. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, when we come to passages like we looked at today, God, there is so much in our world that I know concerns us and fills us with anxiety. God, the shifting sands of, of culture and of time leave us wondering where you're at and what you're doing in the world. Yet, God, I, I pray that as Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, that Waterstone would be a church that holds fast to the truth that we would not be led astray by false teaching or people who try to deceive us or tell us the things that we want to hear that are contrary to what you have commanded for us. God, I pray we would not be deceived by false messiahs who say they will give us what we want and deliver us the world that we hope for. God, may our hope be in you alone and in your redemptive story. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.